The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Wife of a Spy from Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Winner of the Best Director Prize at the Venice Film Festival, this riveting and gorgeous Hitchcockian thriller is set in Japan on the eve of World War II. When a young woman discovers that her husband is harboring a secret after a recent business trip to Manchuria, she finds her loyalty tested. IndieWire called it Kiyoshi Kurosawa's best movie in years. Wife of a Spy opens September 17th at IFC Center in New York before expanding to select cities nationwide. Learn more at kinomarquee.com. Could I know how much time I have just so I can, you know, keep an eye on the clock? 25 minutes. Okay, perfect. If, If it goes over, do we care? No, we don't. No, time is but a fiction. Yes, I wish I had said that. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. And this week, we're reporting from the Toronto International Film Festival, both virtually and in person. One of the most anticipated films at this year's festival is Benediction, the latest feature by the British master Terence Davies. It's a biopic of the English anti-war poet Siegfried Sassoon, although biopic is a bit of a misnomer. Like A Quiet Passion, Davies' 2015 film about Emily Dickinson, Benediction is a beautifully impressionistic, very personal, and, dare I say, poetic account of Sassoon's very colorful life. Davies jumps back and forth in time, melds archival footage and arch scenes of drama, and stages some stunning tableau that tunes into the ups and downs of Sassoon's life as a gay man, and the despair that haunted him and his poetry after his stint in World War I. On this week's podcast, I had the pleasure of chatting with Davies about the film, as well as an eclectic range of subjects. Beauty, eternity, poetry, Catholicism, the power of silence, his experiences in the UK's gay scene, the horrors of reality television, and much more. I hope you enjoy the conversation and make sure you subscribe to the podcast and to the film comment letter so you can keep up with all our upcoming Toronto and New York Film Festival coverage. Thank you so much, Terence, for joining us today. It is such a thrill and honor to have you talking to me today, especially about the film Benediction, which I just saw a couple days ago. Everything about it has just kind of sent me into a kind of reverie. So I'm excited to unpack that with you right now. What a lovely thing to say. Thank you. That is such a lovely compliment. Of course. So let me jump right into it. I am curious to know when you first encountered Siegfried Sassoon. Do you remember what was the first poem by him that you read or the first time you encountered him as a historical figure? Well, I, I, was, I was applying for lots of drama schools, which I never, ever got into. I finally got into one. And what you have to do in England, then anyway, um, was a piece of Shakespeare and a piece of your own choice. And somebody had introduced me to Concert Interpretation, which I just fell in love with because it's such a wonderful poem. It's very, very funny, but beautiful in English. And I did that as my audition piece. And I got in. And I hadn't really read him properly, really. I'd read him in little bits when I'd been reading the the other war poems. And then six years ago, it was in Toronto, when I was asked, would I be interested? So I said, yes, I'll I'll, I'll start reading the poetry properly. That's what I started to do. But his life, I mean, is so huge. I mean, he went everywhere. He knew everybody. I read three three separate biographies, and they were all this thick. I mean, it was incredible. So I thought, what have I, I've got to see what I respond to. And after reading these huge biographies, what's, what I want was the fact that, A, the, the First World War made him, turned him into a great poet. You know, and of all the combatants, Britain was the only country that produced three great poets out of that awful conflict. Who are the other two, sorry, in in your estimation? Rupert Brooke and Wilfred Owen. They're they're just marvellous. The fact that he was gay, I responded to. I was quite shocked that he got married, but then a lot of people of that era did just that. Then 
him turning Catholic, which really did appall me because, you know, I was brought up a Catholic and I'm very much um, a lapsed Catholic now, but full of Catholicity, Catholics do's and don'ts. I mean, it's a kind of brainwashing. And, and what also ran through all of that was something that was intensely sad. This, I think, a huge sense of regret, but a desperate need to be redeemed. And the tragedy is, of course, no one else can redeem us. No religion can redeem us. We have to redeem ourselves. And that's very hard to do because very often you lose hope and the next thing to hope is despair. And despair is worse than any pain. But human beings hope and we hope because we must. Hmm. You know, I think what I'm really struck by in the film, and this is something that also impressed me about A Quiet Passion, is you're able to really tap into Sassoon's despair, especially in his later years uh, when he's played by Peter Capaldi in the film. But his youth or sort of the period after he went to Craig Lockhart and he had affairs with all these men is so joyous. I mean... His queer life, even though it's uh, conducted in the shadows, uh, you know, all these affairs with men, and there's a lot of heartbreak and sort of cattiness and betrayal, there's also a great sense of liberation and joy in his relationships with these men and the social environment that he finds himself in. And, you know, I feel like there is a part of the film that actually turns into this kind of gay melodrama. And I was wondering you know, what it was like to sort of bring those scenes to life and what sort of research fed into those scenes? Well, the, the, the thing that I think people don't understand who are not Brit- British, he was sort of the upper class and you could get away with being gay, openly gay, You just because they knew everybody. I mean, when he was wounded, Winston Churchill and his mother came to see him. I mean, he knew everybody. Robbie Ross knew everybody. And, and Robbie Ross is, is a wonderful man because he had supported Oscar Wilde when nobody else did. He was, he was a really courageous man. And, and in a way, it was a kind of club because they were all from the upper class, all of them. Um, that doesn't mean to say that it, it's any more, more difficult being gay than than now in in an odd way it might be more difficult now because because of freedom that brings its own terrors my stance was this i I mean i realized i was gay when i was 11. Um, um i prayed and did everything that i could from the point of view of catholicism to be forgiven and i wasn't because no no sucker came at all for two years, I, I, I lived with someone, a woman, and it didn't work out. And I went onto the gay scene in this country, and I was appalled by it. You know, it was sexually venal, cruel, narcissistic. I thought I can't live like I can't live a life like this. He was different. The people he went to bed with usually are the people who were horrible to him. He fell for men who were pretty awful. Ivan Novello is just horrible and notoriously horrible. And the thing, and the person he loved deeply, of course, he never consummated. He didn't, he didn't tell Wilfred Owen. So it, it, it was, I was coming from it from that point of view. What I did want to do, because uh, what I do have to say, I, I do think the best side of gay men are a lot of them are awfully good company because they're really funny. And I wanted to make it funny. I didn't want it to be solemn, you know, because there's nothing worse than people going around, I'm a, I'm a great writer. Oh, Yawnsville. So that it's got to be fun. And there are some wonderful people that he met um, that I only had to touch on, like Otterline Morrill. Um, I mean, she was a nutter. So was Edith Sidwell, writing these incomprehensible poems that nobody understood. Um, and she did actually, in her main bedroom, she slept under a mosquito net. I mean, God knows why. So there was all of that kind of thing that we've, you can draw on and make it rich. But, but I, I think both sexually and spiritually, he was unfulfilled. But he was essentially a good man. 
And I think he's quite bitter in his old age, but I think he was essentially a good man. Those scenes, like you're saying, they are absolutely, I mean, sparkling with humor and the quips that these men trade with each other. When I was watching, I was just thinking, well, all of these men need to be on Twitter. Their barbs are just, you know, the one-liners are just absolutely excellent, which makes me think you should be on Twitter because you, you wrote them. Well, I, I finally joined the 21st century. I am now on Instagram. Terence Davis official, and I read some of his poems, and I read my own. So there you are, kids. Oh. Enjoy. Be miserable with me. <laughs> Listeners, join the party at Terence Davies official on Instagram. Yes. <laughs> A verse for every occasion. But I did want to come to this particular scene, actually the series of scenes that you have, so soon with a sort of analyst, a doctor at Craig Lockhart. I thought that was incredibly beautiful because you stage a kind of coming out that he shares with this doctor, this very oblique way in which they admit to each other that they're birds of a feather. And it feels like something like a mentor-mentee, a kind of almost romantic relationship that just is very beautiful and wholesome. And this doctor tells him, you know, I cope by having a less than honest respect for the law. I thought it was just a fantastic moment of candor. And again, this expression of sexuality that seemed completely rid of shame and guilt, which you would expect from Sassoon's, you know, uh, again, upbringing at the time. And can you talk about staging that scene? Well, we were blessed by Ben Daniels. Um, those were the earliest scenes we shot. And they are so moving. I, 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 said, I said to both of them on one occasion, this is flawless. It's just flawless. I mean, I don't know how you've done it, but the gentleness and kindness that both actors brought to it was very, very moving. I, I, everyone has said the same. Um, every, and it's lovely that people do that because he was in, Ben Daniels was with us a week or something, you know, but it was such a joy. It's one of those occasions where you know not to direct, to say, they're really good. I don't have to do anything. I just don't have to do anything. Just tweak it here and there. That's all. Let it happen. Um, and I tried to do that with everyone. I mean, the, the, the average takes on this film were four. I've, I very rarely go beyond seven, except in the big shots. Then you always have to. But it, it was, there was the rapport between them was just wonderful but also the rapport between him and uh, the medical officer, uh, who um, is Julian Sands. I mean, that voice he found is so perfect because he's so bigoted and so awful. But that tone, because he normally doesn't speak like that, but it's got the most wonderful strangulated tone to it, which in itself is almost funny. I know what it means. You know, and he's, he's on the defensive. And of course, he's an officer. He doesn't have to be. Right. I mean, it's a caricature of, of a bigot, really, which makes it so funny. But it, it was it was not when we were doing the, those scenes in the, his office. Um, I just ran it on a little. And it it, it wasn't in the, in the text, but Julian just said, dismiss. I thought, that's, that's fabulous. When actors do things that you weren't aware of or they take a line and make it different, that is thrilling. I, re I wanted to I said, what made you say that? What made you say that? It's, I said, it just, it just came in. It's perfect because it is so nasty. It is. It's full of venom. <laughs> and also when he says, when he catches them dancing and he's leaving and he says, carry on, I thought that was, that had that same kind of lilt, you know, Yes. poisonous lilt to it yes i was you know i want to ask more about your dialogue how when you're writing these real life historical figures uh how do you go about crafting the dialogue you know uh, obviously you're fictionalizing a lot of it i'm sure and and sort of adding your own interpretation of how these interactions might have gone but how exactly do you approach 
that aspect of the process. Well, you, you have to keep in, in your head the, the tone of it, you know, and the problem with a lot of things in period set in this country, they speak in a modern way. Well, they spoke in a certain way. I mean, at one point, Siegfried even says, Cad. He does. Which he would have said, you know, but equally, some of the dialogue is his, he's, he's, when he first met Ivan Novella, um, Robbie Ross did say to him, oh, uh, this is the, the man who would keep the hand fires burning. And he said, yes, that nauseating little tune. He hated it because everybody in the trenches played it. So you, you, you glean a lot of what people have said from your, your, your research, but you then have to try and find a voice for everybody. They mustn't sound all as if they're all the same people, but they have a special tone, you know, just as in Acquired Passion, Americans spoke in a, a, a specific way, and it was very formal, very formal indeed. And if you actually hear Eleanor Roosevelt, for instance, she sounds almost English, and so does Catherine Hepburn. They sound almost English. So I, I, it was important to get the tone. And once you've got the tone, things occur to you. You know, um, you, you, you or someone has said something, and um, you think, ah, oh. no, but if I said it like this, it would be, it'd be much more interesting. The, the dialogue has to speak to you, and I always say it aloud. Um, especially if it's a long sentence, because if if if, it, if I can do it on a single breath, then an actor who's got better breath control can do it. There's one thing that I would have loved to have done, which I wasn't clever enough to do at the time. And my my lovely neighbour James, uh, who's doing this for me, said about the scene when um, Stephen Tennant is coughing into the bowl, and the di the dialogue is. What's wrong? TB. <laughs> and James said, he should have said, or oh, not TB. <laughs> <laughs> I did not think of that. Why? <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Oh, and this, <laughs> uh, James said this when he saw the film. Yes, I just, I said, he's sitting there now. Why, did, <laughs> why didn't you tell me before I made it? Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> yeah, no, and that exchange is, you know, is excellent too. And actually, another exchange that really stood out to me is when the two of them are older and Stephen comes to visit him. A very bitter exchange. And this line, I mean, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. He he talks about feeling really alone. And Sassoon says, well, I hope it's agony, you know? And that was this this cruelty and uh, i was wondering where you got that from i mean did he did he was he really racked by that kind of bitterness late in life no i think that's an invention on my part um, but uh, stephen like i've hurt him very much i mean as he says in that scene you ended our relationship with a doctor's note and the thing that he would do all the time, and I could only touch on it lightly, was that he always gave the impression when he went to he had all this sex, you know, which is an awful thing to imply. He constantly implies it. Um, did they stay long, long enough? You know, and it, it's really manipulating someone in, in the most unpleasant way. And that later scene is the only time that Siegfried has the whip handle. And he said, he's better enough to, to use it, even when his wife says, but he once said that you were matchless. And he says, we are only really loved by the people who really loathe us. Those are the only people who can't think about us. Um, but he had treated his wife badly. I mean, you, you look at the photograph of her when she was young and she's exquisite. I mean, she's just exquisite in this beautiful silk dress. And you look at her when she's in her 50s and she's completely browbeaten. The pair of them got married with, in a way, terribly na terrible naivete. You know, I mean, she says, Stephen Tennant has told me everything. I don't need him. Well, you know, actually, you do need to know more. But she, she was innocent enough to want it. And he was, in a way, longing for this. This will now cure me, the, the love of a good woman. 
but I knew it was right to make the proposal ambiguous and her acceptance. I just knew that that was right. If if I were silly enough, I would accept. If I was selfish enough, um, I'd ask you. I wanted it to be that elliptical because I think an awful lot of people, you know, an awful lot of gay men did that. I mean, Glyn Bamshaw married um, Hermione Badley, who was an actress. You know, um, they seem to have, they seem to have had, you know, a happy life, but it was something that people did without, I think, really thinking. And that, that in itself is sad. But the, the only thing that we disagreed on was Stephen coming back after that last trip. I said, no, it's got to stay here. It's got to stay. For, for the first time, you know, it's all about Siegfried and not about you, you know, and, and now I've got to drop you in it, you know. That sounds almost like a threat. He says, it almost is. Because it's, it's nice to get back at someone who's hurt you. And he you gave him hurt. his revenge. Yes, yes, it is. It is. Um, but of course, revenge in itself is just empty, really. Yeah. It's like bitterness. The only person it corrupts is yourself. But pleasant while you're doing it. But but that scene where Stephen comes back and, you know, Siegfried tells him, you know, this, I'm giving up this lease. So that was also an invention on your part? No, he did actually do that. He gave up the lease on um, his flat in Half Moon Street. And that's when he married um, Hester. He, he did give it up. And, you know, Stephen, I, I, I don't know who Stephen did, but the, at the end of his life, I mean, he had put on a great deal of weight. He'd lost most of his hair. And... Um, he dyed it orange and he stayed in bed writing, drawing all the God, terrifying, terrifying. You know, I'm wondering, all your films have been period films and we're talking a lot about how you get, you know, sort of get to the past and how you bring it to the screen. Would you ever want to make a film set in the present? I don't think I can because I'm afraid of the modern world. I don't understand it. I mean, I have no... Uh, ability for all this at all. I, mean, I rely on my manager and my um, my friend next door, James, to do it all. I can't do it. And I'm frightened of it. It does frighten me. But there are aspects of modern life that I, I just find unbearable. Unbear the narcissism I, and venality, I just can't bear. I, I mean, um, reality shows are the absolute anus mundi. But I'm frightened of the world. I mean, one time I was sent a thriller, I mean, for God's sake, me directing it. I mean, it wouldn't be so much fast and furious as, as slow and rather irritating. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> that's, that's not foot-topping, is it? I have to know if you've actually watched any reality TV. Have you oh, watched Love Island? Oh, unbearable. Unbearable. Why do they do it? Why do they do it? And there's this hideous thing called botched, where these people want to make themselves into dolls. Why would you want to do that? I mean, and lips that look like handbags. <laughs> but I have to say, you know, in this film, you're capturing some universals. I mean, you're capturing some things that don't change through time. And that includes this narcissism that includes venality that includes upper class indulgence and decadence true it's pre you know the ubiquity of you know modern technology it predates you know the spread of television and cell phones but in these films you do seem to be tapping into some things that don't change including the wrestling with faith mm. i mean i was struck by the scene of Sassoon's conversion, you know, you film it really beautifully. And the only answer he has for why he's converting, which, I mean, I didn't understand it even after watching the film. I, I can't quite understand what would motivate him at that age. But he says, in search of something permanent. And this yeah. grappling with eternity and is just something that seems to be so, so relevant and feel so modern. But, but of course, you can't get it. Nothing is permanent. You know, nothing is permanent, certainly not religion. Um, but I think he genuinely felt that he could find truth, whatever, whatever truth that is. And the, really, because the, 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 the only 
two things that religion are for is to control human sexuality and make death palatable. Well, I mean, the first has got nothing to do with them and you can't make death palatable. I mean, you can't, you know, um, if if there is some kind of afterlife, uh, I, I hope it's, you know, what your one's anima perhaps goes into the ether and perhaps drifts forever. I think that's rather nice. You know, I can't imagine it being there with a lot of, Seventh-day Adventists sing some militantly glum hymn on the harmonium. And for God's sake, hell is better. <laughs> if only to stop the tedium. <laughs> the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Wife of a Spy from Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Winner of the Best Director Prize at the Venice Film Festival, this riveting and gorgeous Hitchcockian thriller is set in Japan on the eve of World War II. When a young woman discovers that her husband is harboring a secret after a recent business trip to Manchuria, she finds her loyalty tested. IndieWire called it Kiyoshi Kurosawa's best movie in years. Wife of a Spy opens September 17th at IFC Center in New York before expanding to select cities nationwide. Learn more at kinomarquee.com. There's one scene in A Quiet Passion that I think everyone was talking about when it came out where you use that digital effect to age Emily Dickinson and and the rest of the Dickinson family. And you use it again in this film to beautiful effect. Uh, What made you return to it? I don't know. I just thought there's got to be a point where we come to to his future. There's got to be. And and I, I, I didn't know where it was. And then I thought, I know exactly where it should be. I know exactly where it should be. They should be in the church. And it goes from him to older, so rather like um, young Stephen goes to older Stephen later on. They're the only two um, morphs, really. Uh, I just felt it was right. It was just something that I felt was right. But the use of Ghost Riders in the Sky is purely autobiographical. Um, when I was growing up in Liverpool, my mother had a friend called Mrs. Doran, and she had, her husband was called Mr. Doran, and he drove lorries for Guinness. Um, and we always had to do it on a Saturday night, in, inevitably. And sometimes when he got home early, he would come and join us. And he always had the same thing. He had a bottle of pale ale, and he sang Ghost Riders in the Sky. Wow. And I remember hearing it again, thinking, it's about redemption. It's a song about redemption. So that's when it should happen, that it comes from being young to old. That's the, that's the way to do it. But I don't know where it came from. I, mean, I just don't know. But I'm curious about that particular effect, like, you know, the morphing effect. There's something so moving about it because there's, there's almost the sense of mourning. When you see someone age that quickly and this kind of... You know, you you see the passage of time animated like that rapidly. There's something just so beautiful, but also something deeply bereaving about yes. it. So I was just very, very fascinated that you returned to that particular CGI effect. Well, I, th- I think it's because I, I'm um, 75 now, so I'm very aware of mortality. But I always have been, even as a child. I mean, my father... We're large working class family. I mean, there was no such thing like funeral parlors. I mean, the body was in the house for 10 days with that awful smell that you get. And that, when you're six or seven, uh, you never forget it. I'm conscious of um, the transience of things and, and the loss of things. And it, it, the worst things, of course, are the the, the bouts of happiness or ecstasy you've had, you know, and it goes. I mean, but even as a child, something inside me knew that even at the apex of ecstasy, it's gone and it will never ever come back ever. So I, I'm I'm obsessed with time, and and one of the, my great loves is for Cortez, which is a, one of the main things about the nature of time and mortality, and also the terror of living, which I think is in proof of. You know, um, the, the sheer, and he wrote that when he was 22. It's not fair, is it? It's <laughs> not fair. But the terror that's in those lines, that is not what I meant. That is not what I meant at all. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo, and he's terrified. Ah, oh, but wonderful nonetheless. 
Wow, you you have a great memory, though. I mean, you you. Have I don't these, get out a lot. <laughs> you have all these lines just memorized. I mean, clearly. But when you love something, when you love something, I mean, I went to the movies all the time on my own or with my sisters, and I could remember shots of dialogue because I thought everybody did that. I mean, I just did because no one told me that they didn't. If I love something. I do, I do want to try and memorize part of it, you know, um, because it gives me such joy. You know, it gives me such joy. I mean, uh, I, there are four or five po- uh, sonnets by Shakespeare, which are, oh, God, if he'd only written them, you know, he would be remembered. You know, like as the waves make towards the pebble shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end. Each changing pace with that which goes before in sequent toil all forwards to contend. Nativity, once in the main of light, crawls to maturity, where with being crowned, crooked eclipses against his glory fight, and time that gave doth now his gift confound. Time doth transfix the flourish set on youth, and delves the parallels of beauty's brow. Feeds on the rarities of nature's truth, and nothing stands but for his scythe to mow. And yet, to times in hope, my verse shall stand, praising thy worth, despite his cruel hand. Wow. I see why you got into drama school with <laughs> with your recitation of Sassoon. <laughs> that was extremely impressive. Wow. I mean... Amazing. But I think he wrote it 500 years ago, and it's still true. I know. <laughs> well, actually, on the subject of time, I would love to know more about the use of archival footage in the film, the decision to kind of weave it in, especially in the earlier section of the film when he's really wrestling with the war. When we spoke about the film earlier, you said that, you know, there's no use trying to recreate the horrors of the war, you know. The best you can do is actually go get the footage. Tell me a little bit about the process of selecting that footage and and kind of weaving it in in this very impressionistic way. Well, there are two reasons, really. When I was in my early 20s, they made one of the great documentaries in this country called The Great War, which was narrated by um, Michael Redgrave. It's on on a Friday. Just one wonderful footage that had always stayed with me. And when I was writing this, the, the thing that I don't like about a, a lot of, particularly films in this country made about the First World War, there's this long Edwardian summer where everyone floats around and looking very happy and wonderful. Yes, but it, only if you were rich, if you were living, working in a factory or a mine, it was not so fun. And it become a cliche. So I thought, I'm, I definitely don't want to do that. I want to make the interiors look sumptuous because when you juxtapose them, what they're about to go to or come back from, it's it heightens the sense of relief. But also that footage is unbelievably moving, monstrous and beautiful. How can you not use it? It is so powerful, so powerful. I mean, the, this, the, there's one, one of the first things I chose, but, it was an interior of a recruiting office. Small, all these young lads writing names, and this light is coming through the window, and it looks like Vermeer. You know, it's astonishing. You know, there's another moment where the, 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 the Tommies are moving towards the horizon, and the horizon is completely different. It's dark and black and threatening. I mean, it's just so powerful. You cannot recreate that. You know, how can you create, recreate, a foot rot, their feet rotting. You can't do that. And it, they always look too clean. And the worst thing of all is, as soon as they begin speaking, you see these teeth, which are, you know, have lives of their own because they're so perfect. They didn't have good teeth you know, because their diets were awful. They looked awful. Um, so you can't, if you do that, you then make it anodyne, you know, and it wasn't anodyne. I mean, imagine being in a trench. You go over the top, um, and you go over the top with your friends. Like, and this friend on the left, this friend on, get blown to pieces in front of you. What on earth do you do? What do you do? And there was a, a wonderful little documentary called "The Last Voices 
of the First World War, of five men who are dead now, but had survived long enough to make these recordings. And the gentleness was one, and the camaraderie was wonderful. And one man remembered a, 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 a poem that his friend had written. And the constant refrain was au revoir, but he couldn't pronounce it. So he'd say au revoir. And that const was a constant light motif. And you just thought you looked at these men and think, you've actually, you've actually been there and survived. How on earth have you done it? How? I mean, your your films are, you know, extremely beautiful. This is no exception. You know, each each image, each shot really looks like a, a painting. And in this case, you're able to sort of weave it so seamlessly with these images of absolute horror. I mean, some there were moments where I had to turn away from the screen when the archival footage showed, you know, people mutilated, you know, bodies in the trenches. I'm just curious how you reconcile beauty in this world. I mean, what do you think of the role of beauty in a world where there are there is just so much ugliness? Well, I, I think... You, we can find beauty in life, you know, and it makes it all the more wonderful because it's either rare or it's transient. When I was a child growing up in Liverpool in the mid-50s, Sundays were unbelievably awful. I mean, I, can, I loathe them to this day. Nothing happened. It was awful. Um, and so with my best friend, Albert Drake, we went down to... <laughs> to the Walker Art Gallery and looked at the death of Nelson and then went down. I knew how to live even then. (laughs) It's it's an odd thing, but you can find beauty sort of almost anywhere. And when it comes to you, even when it's transit, the light outside the house, for instance, it's going, it's going, but it, it strikes something in you, which is, which is deep. Even if it's, in fact, it, when it's transient, it's even deeper. But I think we have to not look at the ugliness and the unpleasantness of the world. I mean, that may be riding, hiding one's head in the sand. I don't know, but I just know that we have to look to something better than ourselves. You know, I, I mean, I, I, Vermeer is my great love. And what's so beautiful about them is that is that the, 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 there's stillness there, but you feel that the world beyond the frame is benign. And yet you look at someone like Hammershoi, where it's almost exactly the same, but the world is a menace beyond those frames. The world is a menace. And I think it's that constant oscillation between the two. There are times when you think, oh, what is the point of carrying on? Um, and then something lovely will happen. And that makes it worth going on. I'd, I'd hate, I've despaired only once or twice in my life. And I, it, it's unbearable. It's worse than any pain. Um, beauty is in the eye of behold, but then so is ugliness. You know, so is ugliness. I mean, there's a, 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 a program recently on by a man called Jonathan Meads, who has got a very fine mind, but sometimes the... Um, the arguments are so dense, you actually lose the point. It's very difficult to keep up with him. And he was talking about really the brutalism of modern architecture, and he's in favour of it. Well, I'm not. You know, I mean, you look at the South Bank where the National um, Theatre is in, the, in London, you know, it's like a garage. It's so repellent. It's repellent. I don't know how anyone can look at it and think it's beautiful. But then perhaps I'm just getting old and miserable. There is a lot of attention to beauty in spaces where I think there is maybe a, the belief or a search for a higher power. And for me personally, I think there is something about perceiving beauty that provokes an almost kind of religious ecstasy. I mean, it's in those moments that I feel like there is something beyond mm. this world. I don't know if that you've you've had that experience as well. Well, um, th- there used to be a thing called Coran Tor, and I think it's Latin for 40 days, when the whole of the altar in my parish church was filled with candles which were lit. And you just you just went and said some prayers. But that was lovely. I mean, that was lovely. I loved that. And, and these 
um, they looked like late Victorian stations of the cross where you go through Jesus' life until he's crucified. And they're sort of, I don't know, they had a kind of beauty, um, if what was somewhat anodyne. But those were, the, those were the images that I, when I was a child, but the, the biggest, the biggest form of beauty was in the movies. I was taken at seven to see Singing in the Rain. And how can you not fall in love with movies after that? How can you not? Absolutely. You know, you, you mentioned Vermeer. I, I thought that was so beautiful what you said about the world beyond the frame. I was thinking about the use of silence in in your films, you know. You use music, of course, very strategically in certain moments, like you were talking about the scene where he ages. But so many of the scenes have the spareness and and the stillness to them and the silence. Can you can you talk about how you design the soundscapes of these films? Well, the, the silences are very important because they tell you an awful lot. You know, and they're like music, but you have to be have to know where, where to place them. But also, you have to say to the actors, "Look, f- feel the silence, feel the pause." Because when it's felt, it's different. When you just pause and then carry on with the dance, there's nothing interesting in that. It's something that's got to be felt. But there, when I was um, before my father died, he died at home. Um, he would go into these very violent rages, but it would all go quiet. I mean, and that quiet wouldn't last for 10 minutes. It would last for hours. And then he would explode. It's te- it was terrifying. And, I, and it's still, even now, I could go into a room of people and I know who's had a row. And I'm all on edge. And I think, but it's got nothing at all to do with me. I, I'm not in the row, you know. I, but I'm aware of it. Um, and I can't, that's the one thing I can't bear, is someone giving me the cold shoulder. That I can't bear. That I, if anyone does it, I say, that's it, I'm going home. I can't work. I can't think I'm going home if you do it again. Um, it's only happened twice, but I, it's something that I find unbearable. But it is like music. It's very like music. Uh, my great love is Bruckner. And there's a wonderful slow movement in the Seventh Symphony where there's this huge climax which is topped by a, a, a cymbal clash, which one of his students said, you, you've got to top it with a cymbal clash. And he does, and then the silence, and then the tune comes back, just on first violence, like a long leg. Oh, that silence is just fabulous. It's fabulous. So when it's right, it's right, but it's something that's got to be felt. You have to feel it. You have to feel the dialogue. What what would happen if they say nothing? Now, remember at drama school, uh, not drama school, film school, we had to do um, a a, a little exercise in our first year. And I came up with it at the very, very last moment, a man and a woman sitting at a table. Silence. She says, yes. And he says, no. That's all. And then you see them with the feet at the end of the bed, like this, and they start to giggle. Well, you can say a lot just by the simplest of methods, but you it has to be orchestrated like a like a symphony. You've got to orchestrate it and say, no, let, let's hold this. You can hold the sounds for much longer. We, we really can. And sometimes an actor actually said, look, it's, it's awfully long. I said, yes, but if you feel it, you know what the length should be. And that's terrific when they, when they do it. When they do it, then, you know, it's just fabulous. It's fabulous. But it has to be thought out first. It has to be thought out first. Like, I mean, I go, on, I go on the set knowing every single shot in that script because... That's the only way I can do it. So we go into a room and say, the vector is here. You don't need to dress this, you know, just that, or you need to dress the whole room because the, the shots are many. Um, and you could, uh, it was Bergman who said, you can only improvise if you've prepared. And he's right. When we were doing Sunset Song, um, I, I had 
written a sequence about where the young lad gets shot for being a coward. Well, we couldn't find anyone. Um, and also, um, if you have to churn up a field, it becomes infertile for five years. And I didn't know that. Anyway, we found a, um, a farmer who said, well, there's this little bit of patch of ground, you can, you can use that, but nothing else. Um, and it was quite a long sequence. And um, Andy Harris, who did the production design for me, said, well, I found a siding. Would you have to go and say, I said, yeah, okay, fine. My heart sort of sank. And we walked to this railway siding. And I looked around, I said, well, can I just walk along the, um, the platform? And it was had a little indentation here. Interior. I said, fine, I'll do the shots. And within 10 minutes, the shots were rebuilt. That, because it was so inspiring. But that can only happen if you've prepared and know what the shots are supposed to be. Um, you can't do that on... Uh, on the hoof, as it were. Well, you can, but I don't think, I don't think it's the right thing to do. And also, again, it's still the Catholic in me. I, I, I ter I'm terrified of making a mistake. You know, it, it's almost as bad as trying not to fart in company. I mean, <laughs> are there no end to these terrors? I love that this is your, uh, this is your precy of Catholicism. It's like trying not to fart in company. <laughs> Oh, no, uh, one time you had to do it in Latin and it would have been acceptable. <laughs> well, I know that neither of us really believe in linear time, but I believe that we are at the end of the time I have with you. But I did want to ask about one scene, uh, one more scene in the, uh, in the film where I think silence is used to incredible effect. And that is when Wilfred Owen gives his poem disabled to Sassoon and you just hold it and you just take us you know you give us some reverse shots of Wilfred waiting Sassoon reading and that moment was so powerful because anyone who has ever written something and shared it with someone can just feel the tension and the anticipation of that moment and waiting for that person to look up tell me a little about that scene well it had a dual function that narratively. I'd used it before in the thing of waiting in Acquired Passion when she gives the little booklet of her poems to the Reverend. Yes. But it's I, it's just as you said, you wait and wait and it seems like an eternity as though that time will never, never, never end. And when it does, I thought, well, this time we mustn't hear the poet. We just mustn't hear it. And then when at the end, it comes back in with exactly the same dialogue. And that's where film is most like music. You could drop an idea in at the beginning of the film and 40 minutes later, it comes to fruition, exactly like music. And that's, I, I knew that that was right. But also I had that lovely lad who played Wilfred Owen, that lovely little face. Oh, he's got such a little face. He's adorable. All you have to do when the face is right, you just have to look at it. That's all you have to do. You don't have to do anything else. You just look at it. And people's faces are never still. Their eyes move or they look up and down. All those little things which you can't direct and you can't consciously do, they just do it. You could hold a face like that forever mm. and just watch it. Um, but I'm glad you like that bit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <coughs> as someone who writes, especially, you know, and then a stroke of genius to not show us the poem until the end, because I had not read that poem. And so when he says this is, you know, this is magnificent, it's a work of greatness, and then you're waiting to see, I mean, you're wondering, is this work of greatness going to be withheld from me? This moment is only between them. Yes. And then to be able to take part in that moment at the end of the film, which, of course, is is devastating. Was... And that lovely lad who was the amputee, he was a lovely, Ian Beach he was called. He was so lovely. And I said to him at one point, could you put the blanket over your knees and blow on your hands? You know, the way little children used to do when they're cold. And he's not an actor. He's not an actor. It was just heartbreaking. He was heartbreaking. And a lot of actors would give their eye teeth to give a performance like that. He was just so lovely. Um, and the Vaughan Williams is fabulous. I mean, you can't not like the Vaughan Williams. <laughs> <laughs> 
are you already working on anything next? Well, I'm trying to get money for um, the next one, which is a Stefan Zweig novel. And, you know, he wrote the novella Letter from an Unknown Woman. It's the greatest film about unrequited love ever made. Joan Fontaine, Louis Jordan, fabulous black and white by Max Ophels. He came out of copyright about 15 years ago, and I went and got the film, that, uh, the book that everyone says is his best, which is called Beware Pity. And quite honestly, I couldn't get through it. But I bought another one called The Post Office Girl. And it's a novel he never finished. So it's got the most ambiguous ending. But it's, it's, a, it's a Cinderella story without a happy ending. It's in Austria just after the First World War and when the Austrian economy had collapsed and this girl is living with her mother in pre pretty awful conditions. And her aunt who's gone to America and married someone there and come back, invites her to stay with them in an hotel for two weeks. And of course, she's exposed to this world of you know, glamour and money, and then it ends. And she's got to go back to her job and how she bears that. It's the most wonderful novel. It is the most wonderful novel. So I'm hoping to do that. Well, that sounds wonderful. So I really hope that you're able to get that in motion, you know, easily. Keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> yes, I, I am. I am. And but not finally... all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I will be judicious. <laughs> and finally, uh, you know, you've talked about so many, you know, this book that you, you know, you read and, you know, we've talked about poetry and painting. Is there any recent or contemporary cinema that you've really liked? Not really, because I don't see that much of it. Sometimes you see something that is lovely. I mean, let's say Passe by Bertrand de Vernier, I did think was terrific. I really loved it. His masterpiece is A Sunday in the Country. It's a masterpiece. I, I, it was made an awfully long time ago, but Aretha's um, Spirit of the Beehive. Well, I have really uh, used up a lot of your time on this Saturday afternoon. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for the film. Thank you for this interview. I'm so excited for people to see Benediction and for it to reach wider audiences. And I wish you good luck with the film and with the Steven Zweig adaptation. I hope that that comes to fruition as well. Well, thank you for your kindness. And it was a proper conversation, which is always nice, isn't it? Thank you so much for your interest. Thank you once again. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber. And our theme music is composed by Greg Einge. Film Comment is published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analyses, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. The Film Comment podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Wife of a Spy from Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Winner of the Best Director Prize at the Venice Film Festival, this riveting and gorgeous Hitchcockian thriller is set in Japan on the eve of World War II. When a young woman discovers that her husband is harboring a secret after a recent business trip to Manchuria, she finds her loyalty tested. IndieWire called it Kiyoshi Kurosawa's best movie in years. Wife of a Spy opens September 17th at IFC Center in New York before expanding to select cities nationwide. Learn more at kinomarquee.com.